Ever since Jesus was born, there has been great debate on who he is, and sometimes this led into conflict. You're talking about Yeshua, you know, that brown guy who's a refugee, a uh, big socialist. And some people used him for their political agendas. The most famous person in the world by far said, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. He said, yes, you are. I said, no. He said, who's more famous? I said, Jesus Christ. Others used him to make sense of their experience. Was Jesus gay? Either way, there's a clear question being asked. Who is Jesus? The question that our generation of young people on the campus are asking today is, who art thou, Lord? Who is Jesus? You're listening to Young and Sanctified. I'm your host, Justin. And every episode, I talk to some amazing people hoping to cultivate childlike faith and seek Christ-centered knowledge. So, grab your coffee and a notebook or whatever you need and join me as we grow together. Today, I talked to Dr. David Capes, who is the Senior Research Fellow at Lanier Theological Library in Houston, Texas. And before that, he also served as Dean and Professor of New Testament in the School of Biblical and Theological Studies at Wheaton. And before that, he also had a lot of experience in the academic world. It's hard to learn about Christology without stumbling across his name, so I'm excited for this conversation. Dr. Capes, I'm so grateful to have you on the show. It's gr- I'm really glad to be here. Thanks, Justin, for the opportunity. I love talking about Christology. And, uh, you know, this particular article is one that we're really proud of. Yeah, no, as I'm studying Christology, I've told you this before we started recording, but I couldn't, like, look at Christology without coming across your name multiple times. So, yeah, I'm just really grateful for your conversation with you. So, with with this article that you wrote, can you boil down your chapter, your article, in just a few sentences? And, and, like, what would would the, you know, the main theme be? Um, the, the, the book is called The State of New Testament Studies. So uh, when Nijay Gupta contacted me and Scott McKnight about it, the focus of it was uh, simply what's happened in the last 25, 30 years in New Testament studies in various areas. Now, I, I happen to have been studying and working in, in early Christology and Christian origins for a number of years. So that was that's the chapter that I did. Uh, New Testament Christology, but our, our my interest there is, what were the earliest Christians saying about Jesus, basically? How are they assessing his significance? Who is this man? And uh, there have been a there have been a variety of studies since the '60s that have gone back and forth on issues of divine Christology, uh, human Christology, those kinds of things. So I was interested in sort of weighing in on that and letting people. Mm since what's what has happened in the last 25 years and maybe what needs to happen next for as scholars uh, write their dissertations and books and, and that kind of thing absolutely so could you summarize like give us like few bullet points of what has happened in the past 25 years um yeah. just like yeah just in general with larry uh, hurtado i think i'm is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Larry Hurtado. Yeah, he was one of my best friends ever. He passed away in 2019 of leukemia. Mm. He was a professor at the University of Edinburgh and uh, was probably one of the leading lights. Uh, in, in an article that I, I wrote a while back, I called him the dean of the new religions, the history of religion mm. school. 
uh, and that there, there's a lot of history to that language and such. But he was kind of uh, a very influential figure. We had an informal group of scholars called the Early High Christology Club. And uh, we met at uh, Society of Biblical Literature, and we uh, wrote articles together and had just had a great time as friends. But we were also all working on this idea of, of how early do Christians think of Jesus in, in ways that we today take for granted as thinking of him as divine. Now imagine that this guy is walking among you, and you're having dinner with him, and you're, you know, you're walking with him from city to city and hearing him speak. And then, and then imagine that this person that you think is, is only a human being now is also, in some sense, one with God. What does that mean? Mm. How did they come to understand Jesus as divine? And that seems to happen very early. Martin Hingle, uh, a few years ago, wrote an article uh, in a book called Between Jesus and Paul, where he makes the case that probably within the first 10 years after the execution crucifixion of Jesus, that early the early followers of Jesus began to think of him in these terms and began to not only think of him in these terms, but also began to, to, to pray to him uh, as, 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 as one would God and would, would bow and genuflect and, and adore him as one would do God. So these practices seem to have started early. So our interest has been in the early decades uh, of the Christian movement, how did this get ha- how did this get started? How did early Christians begin to find the language and the terms and the ways of telling stories about Jesus so it became clear that they thought of him yes as a prophet, yes as the Messiah, but as more than a prophet, more than the Messiah, in fact as one who embodied the God of Israel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So those, those, those are a few of the, let me just tell you that there's other things that have happened, but that's one of the key things right. that is happened. Right. And that has become, I think, kind of a consensus among many scholars that uh, uh, four decades ago would have said, no, the, the full idea of Jesus's divinity was not something that happened until 70 years after, or maybe 60 years after his crucifixion. So mm-hmm. did it take less than a decade? Or did it take 60, 70 years? And so that's why we talked about early Christology, early high Christology, and maybe late, low uh, Christology. You know, started out low and then kind of became high. So anyway, th- those are some of the debates that have gone on in the past 20, 25 years. Got it. No, that's helpful. That's a helpful uh, context. So let's go into some of the traditions that you talk about that you are draw- that sure. uh, you think are drawing from— um, or drawing in the New Testament Christology. So you start your yep. discourse with, and I'm probably not going to pronounce this right, angelomorphic, is that right? Yeah, angelomorphic, yeah, angelo. Angelomorphic. Yeah, there's, a, there's a angelomorphic, yeah. Oh, right. Um, yeah, that's that's a really important kind of starting point. Charles Gieschen, uh who's a member of the Early High Christology Club, and and wrote a, wrote a, a, a number of articles and has written a, book, a very important book dealing with this. And so the, the idea was, as early Christians began to think of Jesus in these sort of transcendent ways, mm-hmm. um, where did they find the language to do that? Now, there's these angelo, angelic traditions in the Old Testament, and you find them outside the Old Testament as well among Jewish literature of what we call the Second Temple period. Mm-hmm. So in books like, for example, First Enoch, 
and 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 other books like that. Um, in particular, there's one that I think is very significant, and that's the Angel of the Lord tradition. The Angel of the mm-hmm. Lord. If you go back to the Old Testament, you begin reading it. You'll see that occasionally there's this figure that shows up. Now, the word angel in Hebrew and in Greek means a messenger or an envoy, special messenger usually. But the angel of the Lord was a particular angel. Now, the word Lord there, we should be, I should be, uh, be clear on, the word Lord there is not just sort of a title. It is actually the divine name. It is the unspeakable hmm. name of God. That is uh, four letters in Hebrew, yod Hey vav Hey. We think it might have been pronounced as Yahweh. So some scholars will talk about the angel of the Lord tradition. The others talk about the angel of Yahweh tradition. Well, the angel of, of, of the Lord is one who appears. And as this angel appears, it's clear that God is somehow in this angel or with this angel in a special way. So it might you might see a, a text in, in Exodus 3, for example, where the angel of the Lord is is said to be there and then in the next sentence the lord himself speaks so it's as if the angel of the lord is a is a like a physical manifestation of of god in the world it could be in the burning bush it could be in the ark of the covenant it could be in in human figures um that we see for example in genesis i think it's uh 18 where uh, Abraham is there with three visitors by the Oaks of Mamre. So the question is, are those angelic figures? How do we understand them and such? So these, the angel of the Lord tradition becomes very important. And, and, and it's, it's just one of the many uh, traditions. There is a, an mm-hmm. angel, a named angel in a tradition called, in an early Christian, excuse me, a Jewish text called the Apocalypse of Abraham. And his name is Yahweh. Yahweh is, is this angel's name. And what you have is you have the name Yahweh abbreviated combined with the word El, or the, 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 yeah, the word El, which just means God. So it's like the Lord is God is the name of the, hmm. of the, uh, of the angel. And this angel clearly has some special characteristics that are unique. So as early Christians began to think about Jesus in his, not just in his human humanness, but in his transcendence, they began to think about him in terms of this angel of the Lord figure, this angel who appears and and seems to be a manifestation of God. Now, this was just one of many ways, but I think Gieson and others have made good cases that that language now becomes available to begin talking about Jesus in his more transcendent elements. So do you think that when the early Christians were looking at the texts regarding the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, were they drawing the conclusion that that angel of the Lord is now Jesus? Is that their understanding? Or were they just, like you said, drawing on the language, drawing on the understanding that is possible for a divine messenger? Yeah, because what seems to be in the angel of the Lord tradition in particular is, is you have an identity, a really close identity between the angel and between the Lord God himself. The identity mm-hmm. is so, so so if, and it's big if, I guess, but if the, the Lord, if the angel of the Lord is actually a manifestation of Yahweh, then he is one with Yahweh. 
And mm-hmm. so that's that language now, this language of identity becomes possible. And and again, the word identity is not found in the Bible. It's our word right. that we use to sort of describe this connection. How do you describe this connection? Now, the early church, I say early church, um, by the Council of Nicaea in the fourth century, that's 300 years later from the execution of Jesus, they had worked things out in a particular kind of philosophical address and 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 philosophical categories. But these mm-hmm. early Christians were not philosophers. They were not Greek speakers so much. I mean, they could, but their main language was probably Aramaic and Hebrew. So they began mm-hmm. thinking more in these Hebrew Jewish con- concepts and ideas. And that's what we all do. And we have an experience that is a like a transcendent. We say it's like this, you know, it was like this. And so we, but we, then we, we, we reach for language that is familiar mm. both to us and we hope to our community, to the people we're communicating with, because you don't, you don't want to say something that they don't understand. So you reach for language that is, uh, graspable. That's not a word, but I'm going to make it a word today. It's, it's yeah. graspable, uh, when it comes to both the speaker and the receiver. Got it. Okay, then yeah. that makes sense. So you also include the messianic tradition, and I know this is a dun- d- really dense topic. And yeah. you even it was interesting because you talk about the angelomorphic tradition in a few paragraphs, but then with the messianic tradition, it was several paragraphs. Right. Um, so yeah. can you share a little bit about what what is this? What were they drawing from? Yeah. Well, uh, there's a the beginning of the the, the messianic um, uh, hope. In the in the in the Hebrew tradition in the Bible, but also beyond the Bible, like for example, in, among the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, mm-hmm. we have uh, uh, clear uh, uh, notions of what of that there were Jews living contemporaneous with Jesus, and even before a hundred years, maybe two hundred years before, who believed that the there was a Messiah coming. Hmm. Well, where does that get started? Well, it gets started in in Second Samuel chapter seven, verses twelve to sixteen. It's a really important passage, and in that particular passage, the the prophet speaking for God speaks to King David and and issues to him in a sense a covenant or a promise that his David's son David is getting older. He's he's not going to be be around much longer. So there's always a concern with the dynasty that you would be a one-king dynasty like Saul was before him. So the, at first, the promise is, well, your son is going to be the king, secondly, and your son is going to build the temple, okay? And your son is going to have a special uh, relationship with God, a father-son relationship with God. And finally, your son is going to have an everlasting kingdom. Well, those four promises come together in the Hebrew Bible. And immediately for King David, that probably just meant, okay, well, my son Solomon is going to be king after me. Whew, I'm glad. You know, he's not going to get killed and murdered, and the family's not going to be, you know, cast into the mm-hmm. wild. Um, he, he was a, a relief for that reason. But in that, implicitly, is the idea of the Messiah, of a king like King David, who will come to 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 bring together the the scattered people of God, who will be uh, have a special connection to God, a father son relationship, mm-hmm. and that language becomes 
pretty pretty early. Um, it's the idea of the Son of God and 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 such is is a kind of a late developing idea within the Old Testament period. Uh, but there were a couple of different elements to that that the king was considered uh, Israel was considered God's son in some ways. So all of these elements about the sonness of God and the Messiah begin coming together in and around Jesus. And so when Jesus arrives and begins uh, doing his ministry and, and speaking and healing and such, the idea developed, well, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one who a thousand years ago God promised? And now mm. all that tradition develops. It doesn't stay static and, and stagnant. It develops mm-hmm. over a thousand years. By the time of, of Jesus, some people, some Jews, weren't expecting Messiah at all. They, they never thought about it. Mm. Uh, some, some had the idea that there would be two Messiahs. Some had the idea maybe of being Messiah to being a royal figure, some a priestly figure. There are v- varieties of different uh, ways that Jews began thinking about it, but they were looking forward to that. And there was a sense in which, for, for many of those, that the Messiah would be kingly and royal, and he would be um, uh, uh, one who'd, who brought together Israel, of course, and restored Israel, but would also have uh, this military aspect and would mm-hmm. take these these Jews who had been under the thumb and heel of Rome now for uh, not quite 100 years, but 70, 80 years, and before that, other kingdoms. That, and finally liberate them to be a free people. So there's these this, these traditions of and salvation is liberation. Salvation is being released and freed from uh, whatever that was. So the idea of the Messiah is that, that, that the Messiah was going to be, and this is my sort of shorthand, is that God's agent whose main task is to liberate the world from death, disease, and sin and any kind of oppression that comes along with sin. So the role of the Messiah was going to be that. Now, the person of the Messiah was going to be someone who comes from the line of King David, who, who did not necessarily have uh, royal aspirations and said, everybody, you need to make me king and such. Jesus seems to sort of push that back and hold that at bay for a while. He, uh, he, when people say, oh, we think you're the, the, the blessed or we, we think you're the Messiah, Jesus says, well, let's not talk about that with anyone. You know, let's hold mm-hmm. on to that for a while. And I think part of that is that Jesus is, is wanting to control the timeline. And in, in the gospel record is that Jesus doesn't want necessarily to, to get this big wheel turning yet with all the political, because to be the Messiah was to be the king. And to be a king would would have run into the um, into the interest of Rome, who uh, who wanted who 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 were themselves felt themselves to be the this, the lords of the world, the lords of the earth. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So this Messiah, this idea of Messiah, becomes very important, and it's one of the key titles in the New Testament for Jesus. Whenever Jesus is called Christ, C C H R I S T. That's actually a, a, that's actually a um, a transliteration of a Greek word Christos, which means which is the translation of Hamashiach, the Messiah, and so people have sometimes just assumed it's a name like Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. as if his daddy was Joseph Christ. But no, that's mm-hmm. not it. Mm-hmm. Um, um, 
it means Jesus is the Messiah. So when you mm -hmm. see that phrase, Jesus Christ, you should think, you should translate that immediately. Jesus, the, sorry, Jesus, the Messiah. Hmm. Very important tradition. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned that it took, like this tradition developed over hundreds of years. Yeah. Why do you think that's the method that um, God's will chose versus, you know, just starting in the beginning of book Genesis 1-1? or Genesis 3, right? Here's the fall, but right. here's the hope. No, that's not what happened. There's a, yeah. a long progression of a hope developed. Why, why is that? Well, I think that's, that's, the, that's God's uh, chosen uh, way of, of mm -hmm. being, bringing redemption to the world, to choose a people. Just use, first of all, Abraham, and Abraham to become a people. And from Abraham to become a people, then they become uh, a great nation, if you will. And yeah. then... At the heart of that is a king who is now to symbolize and signify and embody what what the Messiah was to be. I, I think the redemption of the world, like anything that God does, takes time. You know, in, in creating the world, uh, God didn't rush, right? He could have created it all in one nanosecond, but he didn't. I mean, he chose, he chose a particular way of doing that. Now, we could debate whether it was seven exact days or whether it was long periods of time. Those kind of things, mm -hmm. but uh, I, I don't see God getting in a hurry at this point to bring redemption. It was such a deeply ingrained problem that it took mm -hmm. uh, it took this sort of long, um, long solution. Um, you know that 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 is laid out for us in the Hebrew Scriptures, and that we think finds fulfillment in Jesus who, according to the New Testament, is the final, full, definitive revelation of God. Okay. No, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So my next question for you, I think, is uh, really, like, all these questions are important, but I do think this yeah. next one is important uh, because lately I've been looking on TikTok just seeing what people are saying about Jesus as yeah. I'm studying, um, and there's this developing idea in this younger generation that there's a possibility that Jesus is not divine and they're providing as you know trying to provide as much scholarship as they can on TikTok um but you, you yeah. spend a lot of your time on the divinity and yeah. this is like so I, I mean you talk, you mentioned this little this really cool like council you had this high Christology yeah. council that's that's so cool so yeah. can, you, can you share a little bit of you know, the dialogue on that topic and how scholars have recently discussed the divinity of Jesus. Well, let me show you how official this is. Uh, here is our here is our mug, the early oh, Hackistology Club. So everybody who's everybody who was a member uh, got a early Hackistology Club kind of so thing. cool. That's how official it was. Yeah. I mean it was it was an informal group of scholars. I think it's on Wikipedia. You could read more about it, but um mm -hmm. But it's it was an informal group of scholars, and I was I was one of the founding members of that. Um, mm. Back in the '60s, and, and remember what this what this book is about. The book is about what's happened in the last 25, 30 years, right? So mm -hmm. a lot has happened on the divinity side, the idea of the divinity. Yeah. I mean, nobody's debating Jesus uh, as being a human being. Now, I mean, there are people who who make the strange case that Jesus never existed, and he's just a figment of the imagination of the early church, those kind of things. But uh, there's no real serious historians uh, who, who hold on to that. Now, there, there, are, there are, though, and this is really interesting. I'd, be, I'd love to hear more about this, what's happening on TikTok related to this, because mm -hmm. I do think that there is, among the younger folks, 
a a sense in which G- Jesus, we, we've been fed a, a, a fed some uh, bad information about mm-hmm. Jesus. He was just a good human being. He was a great teacher. Uh, we should value his teachings. We should follow them. But he really wasn't uh, one with God. He really was not the embodiment of God. God did not incarnate himself in the Lord yeah. Jesus Christ. Um, and I, I think that that's happening at a, at a particular at a fast level. So, so what we were doing in in the early Hack Astrology Club is to say, uh, how early did this happen? I mean, is this something mm. that happens again over hundreds of years that sort of the traditions develop and people become enlightened about these things over over decades and, and, and hundreds of years, or is it something that happens rather quickly? And uh, our, our, our conclusion, and I would argue, and I think Larry Hurtado argued as well, that it took three to five years, something like that, for the mm-hmm. earliest followers of Jesus to begin thinking of him in these divine terms and to begin using divine language and begin thinking about praying to him as one would pray to God and, and meeting for sacred meals in his name and in his honor, those, the kinds of things that in the Roman world uh, you would do to, with Roman gods. So that became their disposition towards Jesus after mm. having known him uh, and, and known his physicality. That's not to say that we should not look at the New Test that we should not look at the New Testament as mm. showing us Jesus as what an ideal person should be. In other words, what we have in Jesus is an ideal humanity, humanity as it was supposed to be. And so Daniel Kirk, who I, th- I think uh, I, th- I think he's still writing in this in this field, uh, wrote a really interesting book a few years back uh, called uh, "A Man Attested by God." And in that, he he made the case that within the Synoptic Gospels, at least Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that the mm-hmm. portrait you have there is not of a divine Christ at all, but you have an idealized humanity. This is what humanity is supposed to be. So we look to Jesus as the model human. Hmm. Now, I, I, I applaud that. I think that is exactly right. I, I, I don't think that's all you find in the Synoptic Gospels. I'm writing a book right now called Matthew Through Old Testament Eyes. And in that hmm. book, I'm, I'm making the case in certain places that Jesus is being uh, seen and modeled and described in ways that would only be appropriate uh, as one would think about God, it, it would be blasphemous otherwise. So this happens with Matthew's gospel and the earlier traditions as well, which are written, uh, people will argue, between about 16 and 70, 80, something like that. Uh, I think probably in the 60s or 70s, likely, not the 80s. Mm-hmm. Luke comes along later, does the same thing. John comes along later, does the same thing uh, pretty much. So... Um, but I do think and uh, that there is this really interesting movement that we that we, we see that of of setting Jesus aside as it, it's it's hard for us to grasp that a human being can be God, right? Yeah. We but and part of that is our own Gnosticism that we we are heirs to kind of a Gnostic way of viewing things that this world here is and everything in it is uh, and this materiality is is moving toward corruption and moving toward end, moving toward decay. Everything mm-hmm. in this world decays. And how mm-hmm. can that how can God who 
uh, who is not in that realm, who is in an eternal realm, come into this fleshly uh, yeah. humanity. And so there are philosophical issues that, that the early Christians dealt with on that. I think that's a very negative view of this material world. Uh, I think it's the, probably the wrong view. Uh, I understand that everything that we, that, that we see decays. Uh, that does mm-hmm. not mean that it's not ultimately good, indeed very good, as is described yeah. in Genesis. And this materiality that Jesus occupied becomes very significant um, as, as a way of thinking about resurrection and the resurrection hope. Because in that resurrection, Christians believe, mm-hmm. the body of Jesus is now transformed into a kind of other materiality that mm. is not subject to decay and such. So so that Jesus could be seen and touched and handled and uh, he he ate in front of the disciples. All the all the descriptions that you see in Luke in particular, but also the other early Christian documents where where the physicality of Jesus remains post resurrection, but it's a different kind of mm-hmm. physicality. And materiality. Got it. Yeah. Okay. That, that's and probably more than you ever wanted to know about that. No, that's exactly. I want to know more. Yeah. That's why I'm doing this. Yeah. Um, good. This, but I'm curious. So, because yeah, I, I see the same thing. There is this, like, an attempt to strip Jesus of his divinity, for whatever reason. I mean, I, there's this. Uh, he, I think he's a scholar. He claims he has a PhD. Um, but he's a Latter-day Saint scholar, but he doesn't tell people uh-huh. that on TikTok. He has a huge following, um, but it, uh, his one of his latest videos was trying to debunk the divinity of Jesus by saying, oh, he's just another divine agent, just like the Son of Man was in Enoch 1 and Daniel 7 and the uh, the angel of the Lord. So my, my I didn't yeah. prep you for this question, and I can edit this out if, if you don't want it, but why yeah. do we as Christians, as people who believe in God, you know, not everyone, um, you know, people are struggling, right? And that's why a part of right. I'm doing this podcast is to encourage uh, healthy Christology. Yeah. Um, why does Jesus need to be God? You know, when we're considering the Christian faith, um, instead of just going with what people have done and not thinking for ourselves, why should we, we consider Jesus as God? Mm-hmm. The, the Yeah, I, that's a great question. Um Back back in the '60s, there was a a movement called the Myth of God Incarnate. Mm. A number of scholars got together, and, and they were, in a sense, trying to debunk the incarnation, the idea of incarnation. And uh, Jimmy Dunn comes along. James Dunn uh, came along and wrote a book called Christology in the Making, where he he made made a case for a positive case for um, the incarnation. But 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 mm. that that sort of that, the ideas that developed a bit later and such, whereas mm-hmm. our, our contention is it develops fairly early. The, um, so the question is, why did, why did Jesus, why did this Redeemer, whom we call Jesus of Nazareth, um, have to be God? Yeah. I, I think that, that there's very little in the Old Testament that sets us up to the idea of the Incarnation. There are some hints at it, mm-hmm. but the 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 materiality again going back to the materiality this world is this this is the realm of redemption this is the place that needs to be saved rescued fixed repaired mm-hmm. 
And so God entering in himself to that world through the, the, through the humanity is, I think, what gives us the, the chance and the opportunity to, quote, be saved and to be transformed. That without it, we would not understand who God is. What we find in Jesus is a full, what we see in Jesus in his life and his work and what we experience with Jesus not only is an ideal of humanity, of what humans are supposed to be in terms of their relations to each other and the world and to God, but we're also, we also sort of see um, that God, we, we see the godness of Jesus in the absolute love that he has. And so one of the key moments is when Jesus is on the cross and he's, his arms are extended out beside him, like he's embracing the world. He's, he's above the earth, which is interesting, but his arms are extended embracing the world. And I think that's, that's brilliant. It's a brilliant picture. But at the same time, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So we see absolute, <clears throat> complete love in that particular moment. And I don't think that, that, that there would be a possibility that we could understand God's loveness, his character of love, apart from a human being who lives among us, who lives out every moment, both love for God and love for neighbor in a, in a complete and ideal way. I think we had, we had to have that as human beings. Could there have been another way? Well, possibly. But the way that God chose was something that we desperately needed. We needed a flesh and blood person that we could talk to, that we could hear, that we could hear from, that is distinct from a voice from heaven, that is distinct from uh, tablets of stone. We yeah. needed that humanity. So I think it's the reason that we, we, we have it is because we needed it so desperately. Mm. And that was the mm. only way, and the maybe maybe not the only way, but maybe the best way for God to address our concerns and our, our need of, of needing this perfect model and needing this perfect example of absolute, complete, total love, and to see those two brought together. So I, th I think it wasn't some okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna fix this by giving you something you don't need. Yeah, I think God said looked at us and said, "This is what these folks need, and this is how I'm going to address it." Hmm. Amen. No, it's a long answer yeah, to amen. an important question. <laughs> yeah. No. It, it's something. Yeah. It's something that I've been wrestling and considering myself. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm. I'm curious now for the, our remaining time. I, I'm really curious. So, if first thirty minutes have been all academic, yeah, um, yeah. which is important. But I also I, I want to hear more about your your how how you interact it, it, with your own faith cool. and like okay, you have all what? you have a ton of head knowledge, obviously. But how do you how do you integrate all this knowledge of Jesus and even like the the debates about him? And, you know, like some people think high Christology started later. You th you and your crew think it started like three to five years right. after the resurrection. Right, right. So, now, now, to say that that's where it started is not to say it's, it's fully formed, right? Sure. It, 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 it's, I, I don't think it's fully formed until later. <clears throat> but the, 
the first flowering of it, the opening sure. of the bud begins to happen. <clears throat> Pardon me. Okay. Begins to happen early like that. Um, I, I'm fairly confident of that. I think we've won the consensus of the day with most scholars on that on that question. Mm. Now, not all scholars accept that. I, I have several friends who say, yeah, that's, that's clearly what happened in early Christianity, but I don't accept that on the basis of faith, <laughs> right? Um, I, one, of, one of the earliest members of the early High Christology Club was a, a Jewish scholar from Columbia University named Alan Siegel. He'd written oh. a wonderful book back, gosh, it's probably been 30, 35 years ago, called Two Powers in Heaven. And mm. I would commend it to you. It's a fairly technical book, but if you're really looking into these things, he, he's as a Jew, he was looking at this, and he became convinced that, that the early Christians like Paul began to view Jesus in these ways. But he mm. himself did not accept that as true. But he thought mm. it's historically what happened. So um, it, I, it is important to my faith. Let me just say at the very outset that an understanding of Jesus and his divinity and of God's looking at what we needed and fix it and, and providing what we needed is is an important part of my faith. And uh, let me let me just say to you as well that that faith through through life you have struggles with faith, and that a lot of people you know have questions about faith. And we are, my wife and I are in the, in the season of that struggle right now. Um, back when this article was being finished up in year 2019, um, my middle son was diagnosed with a very aggressive and ultimately deadly cancer. He was 36 years old, and he left behind a four-year-old son that he uh, was afraid would not remember him one day. And at any rate, through that whole year of 2019 until his passing, we were with him. I left my job up in Wheaton College. I did a variety of things to be with him, in, uh, and 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 we we pled with God. We we talked to Jesus about this over and over mm -hmm. again. And for whatever reason, um, it was not to be that my son would live. And uh, he died very quickly. They, they, when he was diagnosed, as they said, uh, he could live, you know, four to five years, but it, this is not survivable. And he lived about four months after that. And it was a very, it was, it was, it has been uh, a very devastating thing to us, hmm. both, both in our our grief, but yet also in our trying to put together faith because we, I believed even as he was late as, as he was dying I kept saying to God God this is you would get so much glory if you would raise this boy right now I mean he would mm -hmm. he would never open his eyes again he was um, but I, I just knew that God could do it so I had great faith that that could happen but it didn't happen so we're we're still in this season though it's been three years people if when you lose a child um, it, it's very difficult and uh, it's such an understatement. But mm. we're, we're still living in the moment of that grief, and I still struggle with that, with God over that. And, and that's the question that I, I, I ask probably every day is, why did God not answer our prayer? Mm. And why did God not intervene in this thing? So uh, that's a very personal story, but I wanted to share it with you because— all of that, all of those life events have a way of sometimes challenging our faith. Now, I'm still holding on to that faith, mm -hmm. but it still has been deeply challenged 
and through this pain and this hurt and the, the everything that has happened in our lives. Um, as I think about scholarship, I want my mind, and, and this is not just scholarship, this is heart stuff too as well. I want mm -hmm. my mind and my heart to be together, right? I want yeah. to think about things correctly. I, I don't want to believe something that is not true. Uh, I don't want to hold on to something. I think there's a lot of piety that goes around where people hold on to things that ultimately are not true. And so we have we have got to intellectually, but also with our hearts, delve into that. Say, what is really true about Jesus? Was he just a human being? Was he a prophet, a good guy, a good friend? Or was he more than that? And if he is more than that, and if Jesus truly rose from the dead, then that changes everything, hmm. right? That changes everything about the world, about my being in it, about my future, about my son's future uh, when he was passing, uh, all of that. So uh, it, it, it informs, it speaks to me in a variety of ways so that when I pray, I, I say, Father, but I also know that at the end of that prayer, I say, in the name of Jesus, or I may say in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, I pray. Right. Understanding something of the threeness of God and and the, the complexity. We can't take what we understand in terms of number, you know, number one, this kind of thing, and one book and one phone mm -hmm. and, and apply that necessarily to God, who is a transcendent one. There's a wonderful book called The One and the Many in the Israelite Conception of God. It was written by A.R. Johnson many, many years ago, but it's still a great small book published by the University of Cardiff. Hmm. And he talks there in that book about how even in the Old Testament, there is, there is both monotheism and yet a, a, a plurality when it comes to understanding God. And, and various scholars have done different things with that, but uh, it, it, is still, it is still close to me, deep for me, uh, central for me as I think about my faith and as I think about worship and as I think about what, what, where this life is headed, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your vulnerability. You know, I, I'm sure listeners and even myself, we, we all have something that, yeah. that causes us to stumble, maybe not as uh, tragic as losing a child. So I do apologize. You know, I'm, I don't apologize. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I'm sorry that that you experienced that yeah um yeah and i appreciate your vulnerability and your honesty about not questioning faith but wrestling with it is what i heard yeah wrestle um, yeah wrestle and and you know questions are part of that at times and yeah now part of my part of my conviction uh justin has come that that when we doubt doubt is not the opposite of faith doubt sometimes is a signpost along the way the opposite mm. of faith is willful unbelief, right? It is it is the choice not to trust, yeah. right? The, the choice. So, I, but I think I think God can use those doubts, and and God does use those doubts and use those questions. Mm. The Psalms are full of questions addressed at God about um, life and, and why are my enemies doing so well, and I'm sitting here suffering, and you know all of these kind of things. People ask those. Those those are honest questions. Yeah. And it, most of us will live, God willing, most of us will live long enough to have some very deep 
tragedy and, and, and the loss of a child is one of the, the deepest. Uh, but mm-hmm. loss of job, loss of marriage, loss of your parents, loss of a spouse, all these things are tragedies, but they, they are the way of this world. And that, that is what Jesus has come to redeem us from. Ultimately, death is death dies. Death goes mm-hmm. away. And every, I think N.T. Wright says everything uh, that, that is sad and hurtful will be untrue at that moment. Uh, what it, what is our truth right now is is a great loss and a great tragedy and a great sadness. And uh, but that there's coming a day when that will be untrue, no longer be true. So um, we're looking forward to that day. Yeah, Hoping amen. Day. Yeah, yeah, me too, me too, and I'm sure people listening are. Um, well, I know our our time is wrapping up. So I, yeah. again, I just want to thank you again so much for. Not only your scholarship, but your heart. I can I can sense that you are a a scholar and pastor for the people. I could t- I can yeah. sense that you really do care uh, about showing people the real Jesus and not their imaginary Jesus and yeah, offering yeah, that's hope. True. Yeah, and I think that's a part of what what I hope to have accomplished in my teaching over the last twenty five thirty years and continue to teach is to be a pastor uh, to the students and. I had a, 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 a professor years ago that said to me uh, in, in the hall outside, every semester I have a new congregation. And mm. uh, it's a, it was a brilliant. I mean, he wasn't himself necessarily very devout, but his da- his dad had been a Methodist pastor. But mm. I, I took that, and that's been a very important thing for me, to think that as I teach a group of students, 25, 30 students, whatever it might be, or five students or whatever, um, I am I am— that's my congregation for a time, right? And uh, and and I think others who see themselves in academia very often think of themselves as I'm here to enlighten you or I'm here to do right. But I, I see myself more on the on the realm of pastoring. Absolutely. Well, it definitely shined through in our conversation, so I do appreciate it. I feel yeah. pastored at least. <laughs> yeah. Well, Justin, it's been great to talk with you. Thanks for the opportunity. Of course. You've just listened to another episode of Young and Sanctified. You can support us by continuing to listen, sharing an episode with a friend, or leaving a review. Find us on Instagram or Facebook. And if you'd like to leave some feedback, you can reach out to Justin personally through his email, which you can find in the show notes. Your feedback helps us grow as a podcast. Until next time, friends.